Today we will continue our discussion that we began last time, and that is the importance and the centrality and the reason behind Torah study. Of course, Torah study is so central to our lives, and therefore it is imperative for us to understand why. Why are we so obsessed with Torah study? What does it do for us? What does it do for the world? How does it improve humanity? And as we mentioned last time, there are many, many answers to this question. And in the past, I've done 11 lectures on it, and I think I have a list of 32 different reasons. But today we're going to offer a constellation of reasons as to why we study Torah. It's not going to be a comprehensive list, but I do think it will make our appreciation for Torah study and what it does for us uh, that much deeper. So I want to start with the big picture. You know, we live as individuals amongst the community, in a country, in a world, in a galaxy, and we believe that Torah and Torah study is transformational both for us, our family, our community, but also the world at large. So what I want to start with is what Torah study does for humanity, what it does for the world what it does for creation. And I want to begin with a very interesting teaching in the Talmud in the book of Shabbos, page 88a. And the Talmud points out that if you look at the very first chapter in Genesis, it's describing what the Almighty did over the course of the first week of creation. What He created on day one, and day two, and day three, and day four, and day five, and day six, and day seven, of course, is... Shabbos, where the Almighty rested, so to speak, where the Almighty ceased to create. And the Talmud points out that if you look at day six, Friday, and you compare the verbiage that the Torah uses to talk about day six, it's different than day three, day four, day five, day day two. It's different. How so? Because the verse says, Vayi'erev, Vayi'voker, Yom Hashishi. It was evening, it was morning, the sixth day. Whereas the rest of the days, it was evening, it was morning, day four, day three, day two, day five. Here it says not day six, it says the day six. There's an extra letter. And the Talmud asks the question, why is there an extra letter? It's as if it's describing a very specific day six. Why is day six different, and what is the six day that is hinted to in Scripture? Says the Talmud that if you look at the story of Sinai, when the Jewish people accepted the Torah, it was on the sixth day of the month of Sivan. Sivan is the third month after the Exodus. The Jewish people leave the month of Nisan on the 15th day. And then there's the month of Er, which is the second month. And then there's the month of Sivan, and on the first day of Sivan, on Rosh Chodesh Sivan, they arrived at the mountain of Sinai, and six days later, on the sixth day of Sivan, they accepted the Torah. That's when the revelation, when the theophany of Sinai happened. And in creation, on day six of creation, it's hinting to, it's foreshadowing day six of the month of Sivan, after the Exodus, when the Jewish people accept the Torah. So what this means, explains the Talmud, is that creation happened in a staggered fashion. There's the week of Genesis, and that creates the the rules of physics, the, the infrastructure of the world. But the world wasn't complete. The world was still up in a in imbalance, in limbo until the day six, namely day six of the month of Sivan, when the Jewish people accepted the Torah. That's almost like the punctuation of Genesis. Moreover, says the Talmud, creation, Genesis, was conditional on Sinai. Yom Hashishi, the sixth day. All this creation is going to hinge upon the acceptance of Torah. And the Talmud says something very shocking. The Talmud says, this teaches us that the Holy One, blessed is He, made a condition with the rules that govern the world. And He says to them, if the Jewish people accept the Torah, 
if Sinai goes as planned, then the world will endure. The world will have continuity. However, if the Jewish people do not accept Torah, if Torah remains in the heavens and never descends down to the earth, the earth loses its raison d'etre, which is a fancy French word, reason for existence, and then the world will go back to emptiness and nothingness. The world will cease to exist. It's a very shocking teaching in the Talmud. We think of of Torah and the world as being very complementary. You know, Torah teaches us how to be good citizens, how to be good people, how to be good friends, how to develop a relationship with God, how to follow the mitzvos. It is very helpful to create a good society, people with morals, people with values, people with priorities, and it makes the world a better place. That's how we think of Torah. And truthfully, that's how we think of, of any good system of rules, any good code of conduct. It makes the place where people are living, where people are existing, where people are interacting, it makes it more pleasant. That's how we think, I think, initially. This is flipping it on its head. Here, Torah is not portrayed as being incidental to creation. Hey, there's creation. But now we have humans here, and humans are crazy, and humans do insane things. We have to rein them in. We have to give them some code, some corpus to make them behave properly. It's not how it works here. This is the opposite. It's not that Torah is here to service the world. Hey, the world is fixed, but we want to be a good place. Let's give them Torah. It's the exact opposite. If the Torah doesn't come here, then the world has no utility. There's no use in the world, and it will be nullified. It will be undone. Yom HaShishi. All of Genesis hinges on this day six, where the heavens are going to open up. The Torah is going to be given from the heavens above to the earth below. Humans will be given this tremendous gift, the gift of Torah, and that is why creation happened. And thus, if the Jewish people accept the Torah, then the purpose of creation can be fulfilled. But without the Torah being given to the Jewish people, being given to the world below, the purpose of creation is infeasible, and thus creation has failed. It's time to press, what do they say, Control-Alt-Delete. It's time to undo it. It's over. It's been a failure. Maybe we can try again, but this version of creation is a failure. This is a very bold statement in the Talmud. The whole world is only to facilitate Torah, not that the Torah is there to facilitate that the world is a good place. A very powerful idea in the Talmud. And of course, it raises questions. What does it mean that the Torah is the fulfillment of creation? How, indeed, does Torah bring about the purpose of creation? Why, if there was no Torah, creation would cease to exist? We could even ask, what happened before Sinai? If Torah is so central to fulfilling the purpose of creation, what is the meaning behind the 26 generations from Adam to Moses, where there was no Torah in the world below. Was the world not functioning as it was designed for 26 generations? So these are interesting questions. And let's start, of course, at the beginning. The Talmud tells us, and this is an idea that perhaps we are familiar with, the Talmud tells us that this world is a six thousand year enterprise. Have you heard of this idea? Six thousand years. Six thousand year world. If you count from Adam until the end of the world, it's going to be only six thousand years. Now, what this means about the age of the universe is a separate question. 
because the scientists are pretty convinced that the universe is not thousands of years old, not tens or hundreds of thousands of years old, not millions of years old, but billions of years old. So is this in conflict with that is a major question. And there are arguments on both sides. But I did give a podcast in 2019 titled The Age of the Universe, Can Torah and Science Be Reconciled? And uh, I would advise everyone to listen to it because it's one of uh, one of the best ones that we've done here. So give it a listen because this is very relevant, obviously, to that question. You know, apparently, if you read the Talmud quite simply, 6,000 years, and thus we're at year, I don't know, 5781 since Adam, that is more than just a rounding error from 15.4 billion years. So are these two completely intractably uh, in opposition? That is the subject of the optical practice, age of the universe, can Torah and science be reconciled? But anyhow, the Talmud is telling us that this world, as it's currently constituted, is a 6,000-year enterprise. Moreover, the Talmud tells us that it's broken down into three components of 2,000 years apiece. There's 2,000 years of emptiness, of desolation. There's 2,000 years of Torah. And there's 2,000 years of Messiah. The first 2,000 years, the world is empty. The world is desolate. The middle 2,000 years are the years of Torah. The last and final module of 2,000 years is Messiah. This Talmud is giving us both the framework of history, the role that the Jewish people play in transitioning the world to its perfection, but also what is the goal of creation? What's the purpose of this world? The purpose of this world, according to this Talmud, is to progress from desolation, from emptiness, to Torah, to Messiah. What this means is as follows. The world is an attempt to see if humans can acknowledge God. God is the only reality that hinges upon nothing else. It's the only true reality. But we are designed to not see that. In fact, the world is designed to obviate that singular fact. And we're given free will. And we're given intellect to be able to ponder and discover the truth of God. And the question, the bargain of this world is, I'm going to create humanity, God says, and I am going to endow them with all the tools that they need to be able to develop faith. I'm also going to create all these obstacles that are going to push them away from faith. I'm going to give them a Yetzirah, for example. And let's see if humans granted free will, endowed with the ability to both accept or reject God, are they going to come to their senses? Are they going to acknowledge the Almighty, the one power who created everything, who creates everything? And we start off with 2,000 years and there's emptiness. Before Abraham shows up, there was no one who steps up and says, I am going to do whatever it takes to teach the world about God. And that, by definition, is an empty world. Comes along Abraham and suddenly the world has a beacon, so to speak. The darkness has been penetrated by this light. The world is no longer empty. And that marks a very stark transition from emptiness, from chaos, from desolation to Torah. And Torah is 2,000 years where Abraham and his family gets sifted, so to speak, to its finest flower, if you will. We get Torah, we get all the tools to bring the rest of humanity on board. And for 2,000 years, the Jewish nation is kind of building its power, revving its engines to be able to go into the next 2,000 years of Messiah. And the 2,000 years of Messiah is a process. We think of Messiah as a person, maybe as an era, as a time period, as a utopia, as an idyllic world in which everything is really good. 
But here we're told that Messiah is a 2,000-year process. It's a 2,000-year process to bring the rest of humanity up to speed to what we've discovered, to what Abraham discovered many thousand years ago. To create a universality of the knowledge that God indeed is the sole power. And Messiah concludes when everyone knows that. Everyone knows and everyone can attest that the Almighty is the dominant king of all, the king of kings, the total power, the singular power behind everything. When everyone in the world testifies to that, that's what Messiah has concluded. And then this world has accomplished its purpose. And now it's time to move on to the next epic of history, to the next phase of history, to whatever comes after this world. So we believe that, you know, history has a beginning, just like there's Genesis, there's a creation of this world. There's also a culmination of this world that has an end. And there is a certain progression. And the goal of Genesis is only fulfilled once we have the culmination, the climax, if you will, of Messiah. And the only way to get that is via Torah. If you want to go to Messiah, you must go through that middle era of Torah. You can't just skip from chaos, from emptiness, from desolation, all the way to the end of the road. There's a certain process that has to be followed. And thus, Torah study, it's more than just us learning how to be good citizens and how to treat each other with respect and love and and honor and to be good people, even to do mitzvos. On a very global scale, it is us delving into the tool given to us to be at the vanguard, to be the spearheads of bringing the world towards its purpose, towards its completion. Torah study is us, chosen by the Almighty, because of Abraham, of course, chosen by the Almighty to be the Navy SEALs bringing the world towards perfection, it's us sharpening our tools, honing our skills, having a touch point with the force that will bring about the Messiah. When we study Torah, we are maintaining the dream, the chance, the hope that this world can be perfected, that Messiah can be completed, that the world can come back to its senses and back to its creator. So we ask the question, well, why do we study Torah? What's the value in it? Who benefits? The easiest answer is everyone benefits. If not for Torah, the world is undone. We go back to the starting point, back to square one, back to the drawing board. Yom Hashishi, Genesis, all hinges on Sinai because this is the process. We go from desolation to Torah to Messiah, you cannot skip Torah. There's no way, there's no portal to bring about Messiah outside of Torah. That's one idea on a global scale. And there's another point, and this is an idea that anyone that has the great fortune of spending time in yeshiva, this is an idea that gets drilled into your head in the yeshiva. The Talmud tells us that Torah is really, really great. Because if not for Torah, then heaven and earth will not endure. It quotes a verse, Im lo brisi yomam valayla, if not for my covenant of day and night, chukos shomayim va'aris lo samti, the rules of heaven and earth I will not place. And this is very similar to the other idea. Genesis hinges on Sinai. If not for Torah, we don't have a world. But what this means on a more direct level is as follows. We're told by our sages that Torah study is the engine that keeps this world going. And If there was a second, a moment, where there was no Torah study anywhere in the globe, the entire world 
would instantly cease to exist. That's what we believe. If there was one second anywhere in the world where Torah was not being studied, that's it. We go back to before Genesis, to emptiness, nothingness, the world as we know it ceases to exist. That's what our sages tell us, which is a very bold idea. It's almost like there's mutually assured destruction. We have access to this nuclear bomb, and that is basically just pulling the plug. We, we could pull the plug on creation. This is obviously not something we would want to do. This world, our sages tell us, hinges upon Torah study. If Torah study stops for even a second, if there's no one anywhere on the globe studying Torah, then this world ends. Now, what's the reason for this? Why would Torah study be the thing that maintains the world? And why, if there's a second where there's no one studying Torah, why would the world cease to exist? So there's a very deep idea here. We believe that there are parallel worlds, meaning that, of course, we ourselves, we have a body, we have a soul. And those are very different. Those are almost opposite. One's completely physical, one's completely spiritual. Like we said last time, one's like an angel and one's like an animal, one's like a beast. And they're kind of paralleling each other. They're mirroring each other. They're coexisting within each other, so to speak. But that's just us as individuals. This world has a parallel in the spiritual world, or maybe even many parallels in the spiritual world. But the idea at play over here is that nothing physical can exist without spiritual energy and vitality powering it. So, for example... The Midrash tells us that every single blade of grass has an angel that instructs it to grow. That's, the, that's what the Midrash says. Every single blade of grass, there's, I don't know, billions or trillions of them. Every single one of them has an angel that says, okay, it's time for you to grow. It hits it and says, time to grow. What that means is, is that there could be nothing physical that grows, that flourishes, unless there is a spiritual force behind it that is effectuating that growth. This world is not siloed off from the spiritual world. This world must be connected to the spiritual world for it to exist. So we have a spiritual world where the actual vitality and energy exists, of course, that comes from God. And we have our world that on its own cannot self-sustain because it doesn't have the power, doesn't have the vitality, doesn't have the energy, doesn't have the electricity for it to continue to endure. It must be connected to the spiritual world in order to draw its vitality. So the only way this world can exist is if it is connected to a diametrically opposite world. There has to be a pipeline that connects the spiritual world to the physical world and thereby provides it the vitality for it to exist. How does that work? Here's how it works. We have access to a heavenly Torah. Even though the Torah is here, the roots of the Torah are still in heaven above. And every time we study Torah, we are drawing, so to speak, the vitality via the Torah to this world. Every time you study Torah, you are making a connection between the heavenly spheres and the world that you inhabit. And via that pipeline, via that portal all the life and vitality for everything in this world can be drawn. So you have one person studying Torah 
there's at least one pipeline. And once you have that connection, everything can flow through that and bring it down below. It's kind of amazing that these ideas are featured before the most obvious analogy it was invented, you know, the idea of a plug. If you have one plug connecting it to the source of the energy, it's a source of electricity, then you can have all the lights on in the house. You pull the plug, it's only one plug. Why, did, why does every light turn off? Well, that's the answer. The lights are only illuminated via this current of, of vitality of electricity, and therefore if you remove it, it's on its own, and on its own, the light bulb on its own, disconnected from the source of, of, of energy, is useless, cannot provide any illumination. This world can only exist if it is plugged in to the spiritual world. And how does it get plugged in? Who makes that connection? That is Torah, because Torah is rooted above. And when man, so to speak, engages, man is mankind. Man engages in Torah study, that's almost like a batch request for Torah and that creates a connection, and through that connection, everything else can flow through. In Jewish literature, the Jewish people are described as the pupil of the eye. The pupil of the eye. God, for example, would guard us like the pupil of the eye. And our sages explain to us that what this means is this idea. You interface with the world around you via a tiny little hole, the pupil of your eye. Your whole world that you see, the whole panoramic view that you have, all comes through a one tiny hole, the pupil of your eye. The Jewish people, we are the world's pupil. Because via that little portal, we bring the life and vitality to the world around us. Now, in chapter 136 of Psalms, we have 26 verses that talk about God's kindness. God's kindness for the world. And as she just tell us that God's kindness for the world, 26 verses, that's to highlight the fact that there were 26 generations from Adam to Moses and thus, there was 26 generations where the world had no Torah. And consequently, the only way the world existed is only via the Almighty's kindness. We didn't have the tools to be able to plug into the spiritual world. And therefore, the only way we existed is via God's kindness. However, once we got Torah, now it's in our hands if we want the world to endure, if we don't want it to be restored back to a terrible time of nothingness, of emptiness, of chaos, if we want the world as we know it to endure, well, we have to plug in and we have to draw that vitality. This is kind of a wild insight. If for one second, there's no Torah study in the world, the entire universe would revert back to chaos and nothingness. What a crazy idea. It's been suggested that one of the reasons why the Jewish people are always in exile and scattered throughout the globe, it's to make this easier. You know, if we all were on the same time zone, if we were all in the same time zone, it would be really hard to make sure that Torah studies being covered at all times. You know, if it's the Super Bowl, right? Everyone's distracted. <laughs> Everyone's distracted during the Super Bowl, right? And if everyone was on the same time zone, maybe there would be a risk of there being some empty time where no one's covering it. We're scattered throughout the world. You have people in, in Asia, of course, and in Africa, and in South America, and Europe, of course, the United States, Canada. There's Jews everywhere. Jews in Australia. And they're doing the heavy lifting when we're sleeping. But I'll tell you something interesting. The first modern yeshiva, the famed yeshiva of Volazhin, they stressed this idea very strongly. They had a guard. There were always a minimum of two students studying Torah at all times of the day or night, 24-7, 365. Always. And that was to reinforce this idea. 
we are the protectors of humanity. And therefore, you may take the, the, you know, the, the 12 to 4 shift, and then at 4 o'clock, another group comes in, the 4 to 8 shift, make sure, regardless of what happens, there's always someone studying Torah at all times. Just like we just had the festival of Shavuos, studying Torah the whole night. That was every single night in the yeshiva in Valajan. And that, of course, really reinforces what Torah study does for the world at large. Not only is it the fulfillment of the purpose of the world, not only is it the force that will usher in the Messianic era or complete the Messianic era, every second it's vital, it's necessary, because without it, the world ceases to exist. In the book of Sanhedrin, page 99b, the Talmud is talking about an individual who is an apikores. An apikores is some sort of heretic, but the Talmud is not exactly sure what exactly it means. And the Talmud offers various different interpretations as to what exactly an apikores is. And one of the opinions is that an apikores, this kind of heretic, is like the people who say the following. They say, what did the rabbis do for us already? They are reading scripture, they are studying Talmud, but they're doing it just for themselves. These rabbis are selfish parasites. All their studies just for themselves. If someone makes that claim, if someone levies that accusation, the Talmud says that they are classified as an apikores and they lose their portion for the world to come. They're basically cut off from the Jewish people. They're on their own. Spiritually, they're dead. And the comment of Rashi is very interesting. Someone who makes that sardonic statement. What did the rabbis do for us? They're just studying for themselves. They are not understanding this point. Rashi tells us, what the rabbis do for us? When someone says that, they fail to recognize that the entire world only endures thanks to the sages and the scholars studying. So when someone fails to recognize that basic fact, they are so far removed from civilization, from the way things ought to be, they are just done. They're on their own. They're off the reservation. The Mishnah on Perkeravas tells us the world hinges on three things. The world relies, the world stands on three things. Just like if you have a chair, a stool, if you will, with three legs, you pull away one of the legs, it becomes unsteady and falls over. The world has three legs. You pull one of them away, the world becomes unstable and could tip over. And what are these three themes that uphold the world? Torah, worship of God, and kindness. And the reason why Torah upholds the world is this idea, because it creates a pipeline, a connection, through which the divine heavenly vitality can be brought and drawn down to this world below. And therefore, if you don't have that, you pull away that leg of the world, the world topples over. So to answer our question, what benefit is there in Torah study? On a global macro scale, the answer is very clear. Torah is the thing that brings about Messiah, and Torah is the thing that upholds the world. Without it, we are doomed. Well, that's great. Isn't that nice? If I study Torah, I could help the world. I could help humanity. I could bring vitality to the world. I fulfill the reason for creation. But what about me? What's in it for me? What do I personally gain via Torah study? And the answer, of course, is quite a lot. When you study Torah, forget about the world. Forget about humanity. Forget about Genesis. Forget about existence. Forget about that. You yourself benefit tremendously with Torah study. Well, how so? So let's start with the obvious. If you study Torah, you know how to observe the mitzvos. And if you want to observe the mitzvos, you want to fill the Almighty's dicta, you need to know how to do it. So on a very basic level, if you don't study Torah, you won't be able to fill the mitzvos because you won't know what to do. If you want to obey the instructions of the Torah, you need to study its laws. 
So it's a very basic idea. Torah study enables a person to fulfill the mitzvos. But how much of Torah study is actually dedicated towards knowing the laws, knowing the halacha, knowing how to fulfill the mitzvos? The answer is, at least for me and in most yeshivas, quite a little. Maybe a percent or two. It's very little, surprisingly so. And the reason for that is because if you are fortunate enough to grow up, to be raised in an environment that is very sensitive to adhering to Torah, well then, to know how to do it, you've been trained since you were a small child to know how to do it. And maybe you could supplement that to actually study the sources, but when you go to yeshiva, in all likelihood, the subject matter that you're going to study in Talmud is something which you've never encountered in real life. Like for example, we spent a year studying the laws of Baba Kama, and it starts off with what happens with my arch gores your arch. I've never owned an arch. In fact, I don't think I know anyone that's ever owned an arch. We don't have as many bovines as we used to have. Why would you spend a year studying that? Or leverite marriage. Do people even know what that is? If two brothers are coexisting and one dies without any children, the second brother marries the first brother's wife or does chalitza, which is a form of pseudo-divorce. I've never seen that in my life. We spent a year studying that. The Book of Sanhedrin. It talks about the Sanhedrin. We haven't had a Sanhedrin in 1,500 years. People study the laws of the temple and sacrifices. Hasn't happened in nearly 2,000 years. So almost all of what we study are things that are not practical on a daily schedule or even a weekly schedule. Many things have never happened in our lifetimes. Yet we study it nonetheless. So clearly there's benefit to study things that are not relevant. And the Talmud indeed tells us that there are several mitzvahs that have never happened in all of history. There are at least three mitzvahs, the Talmud tells us, that never, even once in history, did they happen. At a maximum, there's only 610 mitzvahs that have ever happened. So the Talmud says, well, if it never happened, why is it written? It's written to study it and get reward. Study it and get reward. When we study Torah, that's not relevant to us. The Talmud tells us we study it and we get reward. So on a very basic level, if I study Torah, of course I help humanity at large and globally it's very beneficial. But for me personally, we're told in the Talmud, even if it's not relevant to me, you study it and you get reward. What is the nature of this reward? So at a very basic level, we believe that, you know, if you do a mitzvah, you will be amply rewarded for it by God. When will you be rewarded? Well, we believe that you're rewarded in the afterlife. And by the way, we are right now wrapping up principle number eight of the 13 principles of faith. Principles number 10, 11, 12, and 13, the final four principles of the 13 principles of faith, all deal with reward and punishment. We're going to be talking a lot about reward and punishment in the upcoming months. So at a very basic level, Torah study is about getting reward in the afterlife. But more specifically, we are told that there is reward even here for Torah study. When someone studies Torah, they get reward by perfecting themselves. They are forever changed from that experience. They become a person whose worldview is upgraded. They become a more spiritually sensitive person. The Talmud tells us that Torah study is great because it begets deeds. If you study Torah, it's going to affect your entire world. And it will change how you behave every single day. 
It's going to change how you behave. And thus, if you study Torah, you are upgrading the kind of person that you are. It's going to change who you are. Moreover, it's going to endow you with tremendous self-control. You're going to learn to develop willpower. I always say that the hardest thing in the world to do is to study Torah for four hours. Doing it for an hour, that's still doable for most. Two hours, you're kind of pushing it. Three hours, this is insanely difficult. And you try to do it for four hours. And by the way, if you look at the yeshiva schedule, it's like a four-hour block in the morning and a four-hour block in the afternoon and then a two-hour block at night. So we have this on a daily basis. But that forces you to develop a tremendous willpower. And the reason for this is because we talked about earlier how you have inhibitions. You have things that push you away from God. The thing that that is called in Jewish literature is Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is a force that the Almighty implants within us that pushes us away from God and from Torah and from mitzvos. And the thing that it is most concerned about is us studying Torah. And consequently, what we have to do when we encounter Torah study is marshal every force that we have to be able to succeed in that endeavor. And thus, if someone can actually do it and study Torah with intensity and with rigor, their whole world has changed because now they've developed self-control. They've developed willpower. They have learned the various skills needed to overcome and dispel the whims of the Eitzahara, and they are now in control of their destiny. But I want to go a bit further. Again, our question was, what benefit do I have when I study Torah? What's the reward? And we said, well, on a global level, it changes everything. It's the purpose of creation. It makes sure that the world endures. And on a personal level, it teaches you the halacha. You know how to behave. It makes sure you have good character. The Torah Torah study begets good character, good deeds. You develop self-control. But being totally selfish, what's in it for me? So here's the point I want to share with you. We believe that we have a soul. And that soul is buried almost in our body. And our soul yearns nothing more than to get back home, to get back to its roots in the heaven. Our life here is a journey of our soul to get back home. Our soul is is flung away to a faraway land and it is struggling mightily to get back home. The way it's described in the Midrash, there's lots of different analogies. One of the analogies is a sailor was on board the ship and the captain takes the sailor and throws him overboard, man overboard, and the sailor is now flailing about in the raging, roaring sea. But the captain throws the sailor a lifeline and says, grab him the lifeline and I'll put you back on board. And that's the soul. The soul is, so to speak, initially in close proximity to God on top of the ship deck. But the Almighty takes the soul and throws it into the roaring, raging sea below. And the soul's future is greatly in peril. Will it live? Will it die? Will it drown or not? But the Almighty throws a lifeline, and that's the mitzvos. It says, you grab onto it, and I'll reel you back in. That's how we understand the structure of the soul in the body in this world. It is far away from home. It's in a very dangerous place, and it's trying mightily to get back home. And it's trying to hold onto that lifeline because otherwise it's going to drown. What is the nature of this 
odyssey to get back home? What are these threats that imperil that journey? So there's a seminal Talmud in the book of Sotopi 21a. And my grandfather, blessed memory, he used to say that anyone who wants to truly become a Torah scholar must spend a lot of time and effort in trying to understand this particular piece of Talmud. And the Talmud starts off by quoting a verse in Proverbs, Ki ner mitzvah v'torah or, for a mitzvah is a candle and Torah is light. Says the Talmud, the scripture compares a mitzvah to a candle and Torah to light. And that tells us that just as a candle has limited effectiveness, candle's going to burn out, candle's kind of weak, candle doesn't provide so much light, the light of Torah is equivalent to the light of the sun, it never gets extinguished, and it provides a tremendous amount of protection. And then it gives us an amazing analogy. This is comparable to a person who was walking in the dead of night. It's dark all around. And that person is scared. They're scared because there are obstacles along the way. There's there's thorns, there's pits in the ground, there's holes in the ground. There are thistles, they can get caught up in them. There's dangers lurking everywhere. And there's also wild animals roaming about. And there are bandits who are looking for prey. And the person doesn't know where they're going because it's all dark. And they're trying to go to a specific location, but they have all these dangers and they also don't know how to get home. And what happens? They discover a candle. They discover a flashlight. They discover a torch, a fiery torch. And now they could see around them. They could see if there are any holes in the ground, if there are any thorns, any thistles. They have now saved themselves from one kind of danger. They're still scared of the wild animals. They're still scared of the beasts. They still don't know where they're going. But at least one problem has been solved. And once daybreak hits, now there's no more wild animals to be worried about. And there are no more roving bandits because now there's daylight. And once this person arrives at a crossroads, now they're saved from everything because now they know exactly where they're going. What this means is as follows. Our progression of our soul must follow three steps. There is the mitzvah, which is like a candle, which spares us from one level of threat to our soul, which is like the sailor flailing about in the sea. Torah is the equivalent of daybreak. And that protects us from another group of dangers. And when someone arrives at a crossroads, then they are assured that their soul will arrive back home safely. What is a crossroads? The Talmud gives us three examples of what the crossroads is. Either it's a Torah scholar on the day of their death. Now they know that they're still righteous at the very end. Or it's a Torah scholar who has coupled fear of sin with their study. Or it's a Torah scholar that has merited to be able to study Torah with such depth and breadth that they have arrived at studying Torah according to the halacha. Mitzvah is like a candle. It's like a torch. It helps us sidestep the immediate dangers. Torah, well, that's daybreak. What this means is that there are many manifold dangers to the well-being of our soul in its journey back home. And the tools that we have to spare our soul from danger, how do we maintain the pristine holiness of our soul? How do we ensure that our soul is pure and unsullied when it arrives back at its 
source, the tools that we have to do that are Torah and mitzvos. I want to take this one step further. How many mitzvos are there? So we know the Talmud in the book of Makros calculates that there are 630 mitzvos. Why that specific number? So the Zohar tells us something very interesting. The Zohar says that if you count the amount of limbs and sinews in a person, the total amount of limbs and sinews in a person is also 613. More specifically, there's 248 positive mitzvot, do X, Y, or Z, and there's 248 limbs, and there's 365 negative mitzvot, and there's 365 sinews in the body. Thus, the Zohar tells us that the mitzvot are a complete parallel of the body. Well, what about the soul? How many parts does the soul have? Is that an interesting question? Is the soul just one thing? Is it multiple things? Is it just this force of energy or power or intellect within us? Or is it many things? We know the body, it's it's an amalgam of lots of different things. You have different, you know, you have ten fingers, hopefully, please God, you'll ten fingers on your hands, right? Different organs, different functions. The body's quite complicated. What about the soul? Is it complicated too? Or is it a single unitary force? Well, that's a little bit of a hard question to answer. But the answer is, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the answer. The answer is that our soul also has 613 parts. In fact, it's a very dramatic midrash that describes the Almighty instructing the angel to cut up a soul into 613 parts. So what we find is something fabulous. We have 613 mitzvahs and 613 parts of our body and 613 parts of our soul. And the logic behind this is that the body to the soul is like a garment to a man. We believe that our soul will endure even after our body dies. Your body dies, your soul exists. That's what we believe. Death is like the soul taking off its garments. It's like the soul removing its fleshy pants. That's what death is. The body is a garment for the soul. And if you go to a tailor and you say, give me a suit, give me a garment, give me a cardigan, the tailor is going to measure you, measure your your waist and your length of your arms and your neckline, everything. That's what a tailor does. Our body is a garment for our soul. And like a good tailor, the Almighty measures out, so to speak, the soul and makes the body fit what it is sheathing. The body is there to service the soul, not vice versa. And thus the body is tailored to be like a garment to fit around the soul. So if the body has all kinds of parts, that's only a reflection of the fact that just like you have 10 physical fingers, on some level, your soul has 10 fingers as well. And then what happens? After someone dies, the body is removed. And what's life afterwards? Well, it's, it's just the soul. Well, what does the soul look like? Is it healthy? Is it robust? Can it endure? Can it live? The answer is yes, maybe. We have 613 mitzvos because 
each one of those mitzvos provide eternal life to every part of our soul. You could have a body that works fine. God forbid if someone is a cripple, if someone is an amputee, they could still live. If someone doesn't have a heart or a liver or a brain, that's it. Curtains. They're done. They can't live. Without an arm, yeah, you could live fairly well. Maybe you implant a bionic arm. There's 613 mitzvahs. Some of them were told that if you don't have this mitzvah, you're cut off from the Jewish people. What that means is that 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 particular mitzvah corresponds to a part of your soul that you need to live. If you don't have that, if you've neglected, rejected, repudiated that particular mitzvah, then that particular part of your soul is unfed, it's dead, it's wilted, and you cannot have spiritual life because that part of your soul is dead. Well, if you neglect a regular mitzvah, you could still live, you'll be a spiritual cripple in the spiritual world, but you could still have life. But if you reject one of the mitzvahs that were told that that's so severe, you cannot have spiritual life, that means that that particular mitzvah corresponds to that particular part of your spiritual avatar, if you will, that is your life, that is you in the spiritual world. And if you reject that, well, okay. Go try living without a brain, without a liver, without a heart, without a spleen. It's not going to be so pleasant. The Torah tells us that through mitzvot, we have life. That's literal. Just like you eat food and that gives life to your body, the food for your soul is the mitzvos. And you can have a mitzvah and that feeds a particular part of the soul. And then you do a different mitzvah and that feeds a different part of the soul. And you do all the mitzvos and your soul is completely well fed. It's completely strong and robust and healthy. And it can endure in the spiritual world. You say, you know what? 612 is enough for me. This one I don't like. This one doesn't speak to me. In effect, you're saying there's part of my spiritual body, if you will, that I'm, that I'm not interested in. Okay, do that at your own peril. Our sages tell us you have to run to a minor mitzvah as you would to a major mitzvah. Do you need your pinky? You don't need your pinky. It makes life a little bit easier. Typing is easier, maybe. Not me. I type like this. <laughs> One finger at a time. <laughs> Not a great typist. But you don't really need it, right? But who's willing to say I'm willing to forfeit it? No one. A minor mitzvah, even if it's minor, it's only minor relative to a major mitzvah. It's like the equivalent of a pinky to the heart. Both of them are things that you want. Both of them are things you're not willing to part with. Both of them are things you're willing to run to preserve. So we start off our idea with there's parallel worlds. There's the spiritual world, the physical world, the body, the soul, heaven, earth. They got to be connected. Our soul needs sustenance. If it is going to endure in the spiritual world, it's going to need to be well-fed and well-maintained and well-sustained and well-nourished. And again, I'm running through this very fast, but there are countless sources to this effect, how Torah nourishes the soul, how mitzvot nourish the soul. But this is the point I want to, I want to share with you. There are two ways to feed the soul. We talked about the mitzvot, 613 mitzvot. Each one's like a candle. Each one of them provides life and vitality and continuity and perpetuation to one part of your soul, to one 613th of your soul. Well, what about the mitzvahs that we cannot fulfill? You gave me a list. There's three mitzvahs that can never be fulfilled. But if you're not a Kohen, there is a whole slew of mitzvahs you can fulfill. If you don't have a temple, you can't bring sacrifices. You can't fulfill those mitzvahs. If you're not a king... In the unlikely event, I'm not speaking to monarchs, there are six mitzvahs of a king that you cannot fulfill. The amount of mitzvahs that we can fulfill is really a small sliver of the 613. 
how do we ensure that all the other parts of our spiritual avatar are given life? The answer, of course, is Torah study. The Talmud Book of Menachos, page 110a, tells us that if you study the laws of a sacrifice, it's as if you've fulfilled the mitzvah of a sacrifice. And thus, when we spend the time in the yeshiva and we're studying all kinds of things that are not relevant, on a spiritual level, they are very relevant. Because spiritually, if you cannot fulfill the mitzvah, you could plug in that gap in your spiritual avatar with the Torah study of that mitzvah. Moreover, and this is maybe the most important takeaway. Our sages tell us, Talmud, Torah, Keneged, Kulam. Torah study is equivalent to all of it. Meaning that every single mitzvah corresponds to one part of our soul. But Torah study is equivalent to all of them. If a mitzvah is life and vitality to one part of our soul, Torah study is a multivitamin. Torah study provides life to every part of us. Torah study is a panacea. It provides life and vitality to every part of our existence. And thus, we talk about our soul. It's thrown into this world. It's flailing about in the sea. It's clutching onto the lifeline thrown by the captain. It's trying to get back to heaven. It wants to make sure that the soul is pure, is well-maintained, is robust for eternal life. Because your life here, you know, it's at 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, 100 years. Maybe you lived 150. It's still limited, even if it's a 1,000 years. A 1,000 years, it's not bad. Methuselah, what, 969? Great. But it's still temporary. Your soul is permanent. And you want to make sure that that permanent part of yourself is adequately maintained. And the best way to do it, our sages tell us, is via Torah study. So to our question, what do I gain with Torah study? It's the same question that someone who's starving and has a delicious plate of food placed in front of them. And they say, what do I gain by eating this food? Torah study is not something you do in a favor for God. God doesn't need your favors. And you know what? You are helping humanity. You are. Because you're helping usher the world or nudging the world, pivoting the world down this progress towards perfection, towards Messiah. That is great. Helpful, necessary, vital, critical, crucial. But for you yourself, Torah study is transformational. It is the activity best designed to ensure that you will earn and merit spiritual life for all eternity. Now, I want to say, I was looking at my notes and I'm like, there's so much other good, juicy stuff I want to talk about. For example, I mentioned earlier, briefly, there's something called the Yetzirah, evil inclination. The Talmud tells us there's only one antidote to the evil inclination, and that's Torah study. That's it. Nothing else can do it. There's an entire body of knowledge out there for us to understand exactly how Torah study serves as an antidote for the venom of the Sahara, And that we didn't get to. And then there's Adam. And what was Adam thinking? And why did he eat from that tree? What was motivating that crazy decision? And the true answer is that Adam wanted Torah. He wanted to become a world builder. He was only an inhabitant of the world. He wasn't given the keys to create a world. And we're told that the Almighty used the Torah to create the world. Meaning, we have the very instructions needed to create the world. And that's what Adam wanted. And he said, I'm willing to bite the bullet and swallow the poison and even the fruit so long as I'm able to get the benefits that come with that, namely the Torah, and I can become a Yotzer Olamas, a builder of worlds. 
That's a very advanced idea. We have something that Adam did not have. So there are lots of different reasons why we study Torah. Like I said, there's 32. We did it all in two sessions here. But I hope that we will emerge with a renewed appreciation of the power and the supremacy of Torah study. And we'll know the answer to the question, why are we so obsessed with it? Why have we been obsessed with it since the times of the Talmud, even beforehand? Moses spends 40 years teaching Torah. That's what they did. And they might have facilitated that with manna. You want to study Torah? I'll take care of you. Here's the manna. Here's this cocooned environment. You're good. Just study Torah. The very first thing our nation does, once it's forged as a nation, is spend multiple decades studying Torah. Now we know why. It brings the world towards its purpose. It helps pivot us from the 2,000 years of, of chaos, Torah, Messiah. It ensures the world has continuity. There's the pipelines connecting the worlds. One second without Torah study, the world is done. And it benefits us on multiple levels. We now know what to do. We know the halacha. It helps us improve and refine our character. It's food for our soul. It's the multivitamin, the panacea. It's the one thing that ensures that when our soul arrives in heaven, it is fully intact for all of us, for all of eternity. May we all be so fortunate to connect with Torah study to develop a relationship with Torah and indeed to become meritorious, to arrive at Omaba with an unblemished soul and ready to reap the rewards of our efforts for all of eternity. This is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby coming to you from the Torah Center in Houston, Texas. I thank you for listening. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback.